We've been studying God's covenant with Noah, and last time we looked at the structure of Genesis 8, verse 20, to chapter 9, verse 17, where God made his covenant with Noah following the flood. And we talked also about the introduction to that covenantal material in chapter 8, verses 20 to 22. We saw that God's covenant with Noah was a response to Noah's sacrifice after he had come off the ark. The blood of the covenant is necessary for the establishment of the covenant. We saw that God mentioned in connection with that introductory material the a main promise that he was going to make to Noah and that he restates again in chapter 9 verses 8 to 11. And we saw that in that introduction, God is talking to himself. So he's not yet talking to Noah, he's talking to himself and he's determining within himself what he is going to do, what it will be, his covenant with Noah. So now we turn our attention to the actual covenant making, which we find in chapter 9 verses 1 to 17. And this covenant making has three parts to it. In verses 1 to 7, we find God talking about the obligations which Noah and his uh, family will have in the new creation that God has given them. And we'll be looking at that in detail. In verses 8 to 11, we find the promise of God. And in verses 12 to 17, the sign of this covenant, the rainbow. So we'll look first at the obligations as we find them in verses 1 to 7. Now the main point of this passage is very clear because it's stated at the very beginning of the passage and at the end in verses 1 and 7, both God says to Noah, be fruitful and multiply. In verse 1, it takes this form, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And in verse 7, as for you, be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. So that's the first thing. God commands Noah and his family to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. And uh, this applies as well, we should understand, to the animals. The animals are also to be fruitful and multiply. God makes that clear in chapter 8, verse 17, when he commanded Noah to leave the ark. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. The rest of the material then within uh, these verses, from verses 2 to 6 basically, supports that main idea of being fruitful and multiplying. God, first of all, tells Noah and his family that he is giving them the animals for food. And here we have a very uh, significant difference from what God commanded Adam and Eve 
after he created them. You find this in Genesis chapter 1, and God said to Adam and Eve that he gave them the herbs of the field for their food. But here he goes beyond that. They still have the herbs of the food, of the field for their food, but now they have the animals as well. They may eat the animals. So this is a, a new thing in this covenant with Noah, that he gives to them the animals for food. There are those who have uh, objections today to eating meat, but that idea has no basis in the scriptures whatsoever. The second uh, thing that God says here in Genesis 9 verses 1 to 7, however, is that they are not to eat the blood of the animals. Now, commentators generally relate this to the Mosaic Law and to the commandment that you find, for example, in Deuteronomy 12, verse 23, where God basically repeats this same idea in the ceremonial law. Only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life. You may not eat the life with the meat. So God did repeat this command in the ceremonial law, and this is seen often by commentators as a kind of anticipation of that ceremonial law of uh, God given at the time of the of Deuteronomy and of the uh, Mosaic covenant at Sinai as well. I wonder, however, if that is true. And I wonder if that is true for a couple of reasons. First of all, because of the ground that is given in Deuteronomy 12, verse 3, at 23. In, in Deuteronomy 12, he says, the life of the animal is in the blood. There's a, a characteristic of the animal is that its life is in its blood. That's not, that's not true of men. The life of men is not in the blood, but the life of the animal is in the blood. And God therefore says to Noah and his family, as well as to Israel at Sinai, you must not eat the blood. The life of the animal is in the blood. Well, that is true today too. The life of the animal is in the blood. Would it not be true then that we should not eat blood? And in Acts chapter 15, verse 20, when the uh, apostles are giving instructions to the churches of the Gentiles, they tell them that it's not necessary to, for them to be circumcised, but also tell them that they should abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. And so they repeat this, and this is often interpreted by commentators as meaning that the Gentiles, though they are not bound to be circumcised, and in fact must not be circumcised if it's in, imposed on them as an obligation of the uh, God's covenant, and nevertheless should accommodate the Jews to some extent, should um, avoid as much as possible uh, offense to the Jews by eating things strangled, and by partaking of blood. That would have been abhorrent to the Jews to do that. And the apostles, they say, are here uh, telling the Gentiles, 
avoid that kind of offense, that kind of uh, causing the Jews to stumble by partaking of things strangled and blood. But I wonder if that's really true. I wonder if this is also a commandment which we should observe because of what God says here in Genesis 9 and uh, because of the reason that he gives that the life of the animal is in the blood. It's a suggestion I think that we should at least consider. The third thing then that God says here about the obligations of the covenant is that he commands that uh, the murderer be put to death. He commands, in fact, capital punishment for the sin of murder. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. So here he commands that any man or any animal, actually, who kills a man, and the idea is certainly uh, with men that any man who commits a murder should be put to death. There's a prohibition uh, against murder implied, of course, and there is a punishment imposed on the sin of murder. And I think that we may say that this prohibition against murder and the punishment for murder, which God prescribes here, applies to us today. This is an obligation under which we exist also today. We must not commit murder. That's pretty obvious. Almost everyone would acknowledge that. But we must also uh, practice capital punishment for murder. The idea of using the commandment of God, you shall not kill or you shall not commit murder, to uh, forbid capital punishment is not a scriptural idea. Here God makes it very plain that uh, murdering is a sin, and yet he requires at the same time that the punishment for murder be death. The two go hand in hand. And this is, of course, simply an application of the principle of God's law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It is the application of the principle, then a life for a life. If you murder a man, you should lose your life for that. And God gives to us as well here in this passage a ground for this commandment. And the ground is for, in the image of God, he made man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. Now again, the usual interpretation of that passage is that um, murder must be punished with death because uh, murder is an attack on the image of God. The person, therefore, who commits murder dishonors God, dishonors the image of God, attacks the image of God in his fellow man, and is therefore worthy of death. But I would like to suggest a a different interpretation also of this passage. It may well be, it seems to me, that 
God has imposed on man the obligation of capital punishment for murder because he has made man in his image. In other words, the uh, responsibility for capital punishment devolves on man because of his special status in the creation. Because God has exalted him to this highly honorable position. Because God has, in fact, made him his representative in the world. And has given to him, therefore, the responsibility of executing the vengeance of the law. So it is because God created man in in his image that the responsibility for the death penalty falls upon man, not upon angels and not upon other creatures, but upon man himself. And in fact, God delegates the responsibility which belongs to him in the first place to man whom he created in his image. So that when we uh, do not uh, uh, execute murderers, that is a dereliction of our duty before God and a betrayal of our office and a denial that we have been created in God's image. Again, this is a suggestion about the interpretation of this passage, which seems to be me to be more consistent with the uh, scriptural teaching about the image of God. And this would then form for us part of the foundations for civil government and the uh, exec- uh, the uh, use of the uh, judicial branch of government for the punishment of sin and would relate directly to Romans chapter 13 where it's very clear that God gives to magistrates the power of the sword. So th- these are the, the, the basic obligations that God says here. He, he gives to Uh, Noah and his family, the obligation to uh, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He gives to them uh, animals for food, but at the same time prohibits them from eating blood. And he uh, requires that the death penalty be imposed on murderers. And these all in the service then I think, these last ones, in the service of being fruitful and multiplying. They have the food of the animals to provision them, to uh, nourish their life. They uh, also have protections against murder so that this being fruitful and multiplying in the earth not be hindered. Let's go on then to chapter 9, verses 8 to 11, where we have the covenant making itself. That is, God swearing his oaths to Noah, making his promises, and confirming those promises with an oath. Now this covenant with Noah is, after the flood, is different from the covenant he made with Noah before the flood. In Genesis chapter 6, verses 18 to 21, we also have a covenant making. As we've already noticed, I will establish my covenant with you and you shall go into the ark. That's God's promise that he will preserve Noah and his family by means of the ark. But here, when the flood is 
over and Noah and his family have come out of the ark and have come into the new creation which God has made, God makes another covenant with Noah. And this covenant does not have to do with preservation from the flood. There's no need for that anymore. This covenant has to do with Noah's future and the future of his family. Notice in this the structure of the passage. It has two parts. Verses 8 to 11. The first part, God begins by saying, I establish my covenant. And that's the language of the covenant, which we've noticed before, that God always uses. He doesn't say, come Noah, let's make a covenant together. And he never does that in his covenant making with men. He always comes to men and he says to men, I establish my covenant. But in the first part of this uh, covenant making here, God uh, emphasizes particularly with whom he is making the covenant. That's in verses 9 and 10. And then in the second part of the passage, he emphasizes especially the promise of the covenant. So you have a kind of large-scale parallelism here, where he begins in verse 9 by saying, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. And then he repeats himself, I establish my covenant with you. And But this time he uh, talks about the promise, never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall be there be a flood to destroy the earth. So we have the, the two parts, and let's look at those two parts. First of all, let's look at with whom that covenant is made then. It's made with Noah. It's made with his seed. And we've noticed how important this idea of the seed is before. There was the seed of the woman in the promise uh, to Adam and Eve after their fall into sin. The promise of the seed of the woman to destroy the seed of the serpent. And the seed becomes very prominent with Abraham. And in fact, Abraham is required to uh, practice the rite of circumcision on his seed from that time onward in, as a sign of this covenant of God with Abraham and with his seed. But this seed continues with David. God talks about giving David a son to sit on his throne forever. And therefore we have the seed of David following. And finally, the fulfillment of that in our Lord Jesus Christ. But the seed appears here as well. There's no sign connected with that seed. But still that seed of the woman is important. So it's, the covenant is made with Noah and with his seed. It's also made with every living creature. That is, all the animals are included in this covenant. God makes this covenant with all the living creatures. And finally, if we may go on for a moment to verse 13, we notice that the covenant is with the earth as well. I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So these are the recipients of God's covenant. Noah, his seed, every living creature, and the earth itself. Then we have, in verse 11, the promises of this covenant, and there are two of them. 
Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. That's the first promise. God will not again destroy all living creatures by means of a flood as he has just done. He swears an oath that he will not do that. And the second promise is, uh, in the second part of that verse, never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So he's not only not going to destroy all animals, all living creatures with a flood, but he's not either going to destroy the earth with a flood. And he puts great emphasis on this also in this passage. Notice the words, never again. Twice he repeats it, never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy uh, the earth. And he continues this kind of emphasis also in verse 12 when he says, he makes his covenant with me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. And again in verse 15, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you, the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. So God is very emphatic about this. He's not going to use a flood again to destroy the earth. It is a perpetual covenant that he has made here. So that's his covenant with Noah, with his seed, with every living creature, with the earth, and the promises never again cut off all flesh, never again destroy the earth by means of a flood. And then we come to chapter 9, verses 12 to 17, where we have the sign of this covenant. And again, this is arranged in a chiastic manner, that is in a kind of mirror image pattern or a pyramidal pattern. And you can see that very readily if you look first at verse 12. This is the sign of the covenant, God says there, which I make between me and you. And he repeats that in verse 17. This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So you have on the ends of this chiasm, God saying, this is the sign of the covenant. Then in between those uh, end pieces, you have uh, the sign itself. Verse 13, first, I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And that goes on through verses 14 and the first part of verse 15. But then in 16, he repeats it. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. So you have God first saying, I will give you a sign. This is the sign of the covenant. Then you have him uh, describing the sign, the rainbow in the cloud. And then in between those two statements, a restatement of the promise at the end of verse 15, the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. This is the promise that the rainbow is given to confirm then. So this rainbow, which we see also today, is a sign of God's covenant to us. God is 
by that sign of the rainbow confirming his covenant with the uh, earth, with Noah and his family, with every living creature. When the cloud covers the earth, when the rain falls, when floods come, local floods arise, then we see the, cloud, the rainbow in the cloud and we have God's assurance, I am not going to destroy the earth again with a flood. I'm not again going to destroy all living flesh with a flood. No matter how bad the floods get, no matter how heavily the rain falls, God's promise is there in the clouds. In the rainbow, God is saying, I will not destroy the earth with a flood again. But notice too, as you look at that passage, that God says that this rainbow is a reminder to him. Verses 14 and 15, it shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature. And again in verse 16, the rainbow shall be in the cloud and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. It's a reminder to God. God sees the rainbow and God remembers his covenant. And so when we see the rainbow, we are not only reminded of God's promise, but we are also reminded and know that God is remembering that promise that he has not forgotten, that he is saying to us, not only I will not again destroy the waters with a flood, but he is saying to us, I remember my promise. I will keep the promise that I have made. And this is the uh, promise that we live under as well today. We hope to look at that next time. May God bless you with his word.